Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Let's open God's Word now to Revelation chapter 16. We'll begin reading this morning in verse 1. And I don't know if you've noticed this. I've noticed this over the last few months that something has gone wrong in the world around us. Everything, especially my books, have gotten blurry. And that makes it better. <laughs> this is new. Just embrace the new. That's what I'm trying to do. It certainly helps. Revelation chapter 16 is where we are. And I'll do my best. I know it's been a little bit choppy over the last few months. We've had different series, sermon series and individual sermons that we've preached or that I've preached. Um, but I want us to, to try to get back into where we were as we've been studying the Revelation for 42 months now. And from this point forward, I don't, I don't anticipate any breaks except for Easter. But we're in Revelation chapter 16, and we've come into another series of sevens describing to us the judgment of God, and this one is going to look very familiar to what we've seen thus far, but there are some, there's some new things to embrace and understand about this. So if you would, just follow along in your copy of God's Word. I'm going to read chapter 16. I'll read verses 1 through 11, and we'll stop there this morning. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go. And pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. And harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord, God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had the power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. And the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. This is God's word. Would you pray with me as we prepare our hearts and minds to study it together? Father, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for revealing to us these things that we would not know apart from your revealing. And I thank you that you have preserved your word for your people so that we are not uh, in this world alone without a guide and without an understanding. You have made yourself known to us and it is for us to understand by your spirit, help us to do that today. Help us to have ears to hear and, and minds to comprehend and hearts that want to be faithful to what we see. 
I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word, that you would strengthen us as your people, and that you would even use this time to call unbelievers to yourself. I pray this in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. When the Lord of heaven speaks, his servants listen. The angels that we see here that were introduced to us a few weeks ago at the end of chapter 15, when these angels hear the commands of God, they move and respond. As all of creation falling under the control of the voice of God, all they're doing is remembering the voice that called them into being in the very beginning. When God speaks, his servants hear. And that goes for us as well. But John tells us here in this particular text that there are a group of people who hear the voice of God. They see what's going on in the world and yet they refuse. They refuse to repent. They refuse to give him glory. They refuse to hear his voice and to respond faithfully. The unbelieving world does not listen to the voice of God. They listen to the dragon. They listen to the beast. They listen to the false prophet. These are things that were introduced to us in the Revelation as we began to study all the way back in chapter 12. Those are the influences, the motivating influences behind the worldliness around us. And the individuals who listen to those voices are deaf to the things of God. See, in this world, there are all kinds of competing voices right now. There are cultural voices. There are political voices voices, there are ideological voices, there are various religious voices, and there are an abundance of secular voices. And yet we know that God's word is the voice of our creator, and this revelation that we have before us is the voice of God. The word that describes this book is the word apocalypse, and that word in the Latin is Revelation, it's where we get the idea of revelation from, and revelation means a revealing. This book takes something that was previously hidden and makes it known to us, and it's up to us to have ears to hear. So if we listen, we learn that God is sovereign over his creation. If we listen, we learn that God has a a program, a plan, a purpose For how he's going to address his creatures who are still in rebellion. God is going to be the judge of the wicked. And yet in his mercy, God has provided a way for those who trust in his son to be saved. So that's a big picture of what we're seeing. But but John makes it clear in these bowls that the individuals who are receiving this wrath are those who have seen what God has done, And they have refused to repent. They want to listen to the voice of the dragon. And this book serves as a warning that the judgment of God is coming upon them. So here's what we're going to do this morning. There's only two points, and they're going to be rather lengthy because we have a lot of ground to cover. But we need to hear God's voice, and we need to do our best to try to understand what he is telling us. And as we've been studying this revelation, we know that that is not always easy to do, to understand what we're seeing. But we're going to look at two things this morning. The program of God's judgment and then the objects of God's judgment. The program of God's judgment, and then the objects of God's judgment. So let's look back at verse 1. We read this, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go, pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And the first angel did that. He went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. 
Now, there's debate about just about every phrase in the Revelation. Right here, we see that there's a loud voice from the temple, whether this is the Son of God or whether this is God the Father. This is God announcing that the final judgment uh, has come. The final program of his judgment is to be poured out upon the earth. And we see that technical phrase that we've seen throughout the Revelation. It's going to be poured out upon those who dwell upon the earth. That's a reference to those who are unbelievers, who've rejected the, the Messiah, who have rejected the testimony of Christ. And this is the individuals within the earth that are unbelieving. Now, the idea of a program implies a plan. It, it implies a process, a pattern, if you will, that God intends to follow. And this program, as we've learned, is, is perfectly just because the one who is unleashing this program is the just judge of all the earth. But we also see here, and we've seen this before, that this judgment is going to entail all of creation, all of creation. Let me give you a little bit of a rundown of what we've seen thus far. In, in the beginning of the, the letter, Jesus um, warned the church that the judgment of God would begin with them. And we see that in the seven letters of Revelation 1 through 3. After that, we see a picture of heaven and we see a, a scroll with seven seals. And the seven seals were opened by Christ in Revelation 6 through 8. And they unleashed a series of judgments upon the earth. They unleashed the four horsemen who represented the Antichrist and war and famine and death. You might remember those things. So the, the scroll and the seals being opened is, is basically that this is the blueprint. This is the plan. This is the book of God. This is the revealing of what God is going to do. And then we went into a new series of visions, the seven trumpets. And the seven trumpets were both a series of warnings, right? When, when a trumpet is blown, it's a warning to whoever's out on the battlefield that the army is coming. And so the, the scroll reveals the plan of God. The trumpets warn about this plan of God, and this plan is going to involve judgment. In that particular case, it was a judgment on a third of the earth and a third of the rivers and a third of the seas and a third of the sun. Satan's throne was unveiled as the, the, the pit was uh, opened up for us, the pit that goes down to Sheol. The river Euphrates was mentioned, and then there was this twofold harvest as the seven trumpet judgments came to an end. You might remember that. Some of you who are new, you don't remember that. But now we see something different. Here in chapter 16, we see yet another series of sevens. And in this case, it's the bowls of God's wrath. The scroll that was opened reveals the plan of God. The trumpets warned the world that the, that the judgment of God is coming. And then when the bowls are poured out, that means that the program of God's judgment has finally been revealed. Now, these bowls of God's wrath, they bear an unmistakable resemblance to the trumpets in that they affect every aspect of creation that, that are that is referenced in the trumpets, and they happen in the exact same order. The, the major differences between the trumpets and the bowls in the text is that the trumpets affect a third of creation, whereas the bowls affect all of creation. And I'm going to put uh, on the screen behind me a, a visual representation of this, just because I think it's going to be somewhat helpful for us to see the parallelism here. But let me preface it by saying this, virtually all interpreters agree that the language of these bowls is symbolic, but the unraveling of the meaning of these symbols is where many would differ. It seems obvious to me 
that even though these bowls are unmistakably similar or parallel to the trumpets, they are in fact comprehensive in their scope. And the, the comprehensiveness of these bowls implies finality. This is the final vision of God's judgment. And when God's judgment is unleashed in full, it will encompass all of creation. The bowls give us the clearest picture that we've seen so far of what the final judgment will entail. And whether you agree or not, there are some things that we can all see for ourselves. Both the trumpets and the bowls are patterned after the plagues in Egypt, and they are parallel to one another. So here's the first one. And I want you to just kind of remember back in your mind to what we studied in the trumpet, the first trumpet, and what it what it affected, right? And I've, I've put these things and I've, I've kind of italicized the things that show us that these are affecting the same aspect of creation. So when the trumpet was blown, hail and fire and blood fell upon the earth, fell upon the earth. That's the similarity here. And as a result of that, one third of the earth was burned up. That was what we were told. Now, as we read the bowls here, the, the first bowl is poured out and it's poured out upon the earth. There's the similarity, there's the parallelism, and it results in harmful and painful sores coming upon those who specifically bear the mark of the beast and worship its image. That's a reference to the fact that this judgment is falling upon unbelieving humanity. Now these two, these, the bowl and the trumpet, they both correspond to Exodus chapter 9 and verse 22 when thunder and hail and fire rain down from heaven onto Earth. And in the weeks to come, we're going to look at each individual bowl and we're going to try to make sense out of the symbolism. What I'm trying to give you here is a picture to understand the place that this vision has within the broader scope of the revelation. But you can see the parallelism. It's there. Now, there's more. Look, let's look at the second trumpet. The second trumpet uh, is blown and a blazing mountain falls into the sea causing one-third of the sea to become blood, which kills one-third of the sea creatures and the ships. So the aspect of creation that is affected is the sea. The sea becomes blood, and it results in death, right? Well, when the bowl is poured out, guess what? It's poured out upon the sea. It causes it to become blood, which results in every living thing dying. So it, what, what the bowl does is it takes what we've seen in the trumpet and then it magnifies it. Where, where this was a partial judgment, now we see a complete judgment. And these correspond to Exodus chapter 7, verse 17, when the water of the Nile became blood and it killed the fish. Y'all remember that, I'm sure. So there's the parallelism and there's the, the similarities to what we've seen in the Old Testament. Let's look at trumpet three. In, in the third trumpet, when it's blown, a blazing star falls on a third of the rivers and fountains. So we've gone from salt water to fresh water here. And when these stars fall, they poison the water and, the, and it results in death. And when the bowl is poured out, it's poured out upon the rivers and fountains. And they too become blood, once again, corresponding to Exodus 7, verse 17. And these two show God's control over the water so that instead of them producing life, these waters now become a source of death. They become a source of judgment. Let's look at the fourth one. The, the fourth trumpet as it is blown, a third of the sun and the moon and the stars, the heavenly bodies are stricken and darkness falls over one third of this particular of night and of day. And then when the bowl is poured out, it's poured out upon the sun. Again, it's, it's directed to a heavenly body. And this one scorches the people with fire. 
And this corresponds to the plague of darkness in Exodus chapter 10 and verse 21, where the darkness was so complete that it brought fear to the hearts of men, at least for all the men except for those who were in Goshen, right? For the people of God covered by his mercy. The, the fifth trumpet, the shaft of the pit is opened. Now, when, when you get through the first four trumpets, right, it, it, it moved really quickly. And then when we get to the fifth trumpet, we have this longer story that develops. The same thing is going to happen here as we study the bowls. A longer story begins to develop as we get to the sixth bowl. But in this case, the fifth trumpet reveals that the shaft of the pit was opened. And as the shaft of the pit was opened, the air became dark with smoke and these locusts emerged to torment the people who did not have the seal of God's protection on them. Again, we're talking about unbelievers. Well, when this fifth bowl is poured out, it's poured out upon the throne of the beast, and it results in his kingdom falling into darkness, the kingdom of unbelief falling into darkness, and his people, those who do not believe in Christ, fall into anguish. And this corresponds to Exodus chapter 10 and verse 4. The sixth trumpet is blown, and four angels Come, they had been bound at the river Euphrates and they are released along with their cavalry, along with this military um, armament and they go out and they kill a third of mankind. And then when the sixth bowl is poured out, it's poured out upon the river Euphrates, which dries up for the kings from the east. And then these demonic frogs come forward and they assemble for battle. Again, there's military language being used here and they, they assemble in the valley of Armageddon. And this corresponds to Exodus 8 when the frogs came out of the bloody Nile. You can see the parallels. You can absolutely see that this is a very parallel, very similar to what we've already seen as we've studied this book together. And then the, the seventh trumpet. Loud voices in heaven announce the coming of the kingdom of God and of Christ. Lightning and thunder and earthquake and hail accompany this event because that's what happens when God descends into his creation. And when the bowl is poured out, we see again a loud voice from God's throne announcing, it is done. We see lightning, thunder, and an unprecedented earthquake along with terrible hail that falls. And these correspond not so much to the plagues in Egypt, but they correspond to that moment when God had moved his people out of Egypt. They had gone across the sea and now they're gathered around Mount Sinai and they see God descending upon the mountain and all of this takes place. That's in Exodus chapter 19. These similarities are not exact, but they are unmistakably parallel. They follow a repetitive pattern and whatever these symbols mean, the bowls represent the most intense and comprehensive vision of judgment that we have seen to this point. But it is unmistakable to us that Paul is, I'm mean not Paul, but John is using the symbolism and the parallelism and the series of sevens as a thematic element in his writing. And you may not know this, but if you look at the gospel of John, John uses a series of sevens when he wrote the gospel as well. There were seven I am statements. There were only seven miracles that Jesus did that were recorded. And then John was clear to point out, if we wrote down everything that Jesus said and everything that Jesus did, there wouldn't be enough scrolls in the world to contain all of that. But he only presented to us in a thematic fashion, seven of each. And he's bringing that same thematic element into the writing here. 
And so rather than reading this as though it's this one long running chronological narrative, I think it's best to understand this book as being represented in a series of seven visions that are all talking about a similar, if not the exact same, age of the church. And that's where we've been from day one as I've been studying. You may have a different view and a different opinion and a different conviction on that. That is fine. You can be well within orthodoxy to do so. But this is how I understand the book. This is how I've been teaching it. Now, there's one more interesting structural element that I want to point out to you, and it, and it has to do with how the enemies of God's people are revealed or introduced in the book, and then how they are defeated. Now, I, it's all up there in front of you, and you're probably not going to remember all of this, but there's, a, there's an interesting structure to this that is very Jewish in its, in its origin. First of all, we were introduced to the dragon in Revelation chapter 12. And you may remember that picture, the dragon was set to devour the child that was to be born to the woman, right? That was chapter 12. So we were introduced to the dragon, and then afterwards we were introduced to the beast and the false prophet. And then finally, um, John gave us reference to the city of Babylon as the city housing this um, malice against the people of God and standing uh, under the authority of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet. Now, starting here in chapter 16, we see these enemies of God again, but we see them in reverse order. We're going to be reminded of Babylon in verses 17 and 20. And then that's going to be followed by the beast and the false prophet. And then finally, the dragon. The four enemies of God and his people are introduced and then eliminated in reverse order, which if you know your Hebrew, you know that that's a chiastic structure. Uh, Again, John is using structured literature to get his theme across. And it argues for a thematic interpretation rather than a chronological sequence of events. And the reason I'm pointing all this stuff out to you is that I'm, as I'm studying this stuff, it becomes clear to me, and, and the book of the Revelation begins to fit within a paradigm that makes sense. How many of you have studied the Revelation and you have no idea how to make sense of it? You don't have to raise your hand, but a few of you will. Well, it's, it's helpful for me. My goal is not to turn you into individuals who just think the way I do. My hope is as we study this book together that you will come away with a better understanding of the book, that you will be able to, be able to go to God's word on your own and make sense out of it and apply it to your heart and mind and life. And so as I see these things, I want to make them known to you. Thank you, Jonathan, for showing us those slides. So here's, the, here's the, the, the final question that we're going to ask in this point. What is the point of this program? What is the point of all of these things being revealed to us? What is the point of showing every aspect of creation coming under the judgment of God? What is the point? Well, we talked a couple of weeks ago about the fact that the justice of God is just in its very nature. So I'm not going to address the justice of God in this. We've already talked about that. But one of the things this shows us is the unlimited scope of God's sovereign control over his creation. The the dragon and the beast and the false prophet and the unbelievers in this world think that they have free reign and complete liberty to do whatever they want. And the material world around them is just there to do their bidding. And this book reminds us, no, 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 no. The material world has a creator and it responds to his voice. The point of God's sovereignty is to say that God exercises absolute authority to accomplish all that he wills to accomplish. 
This is a great quote, and if you've never heard it before, I'm, I'm glad to be the first one to give it to you. But Abraham Kuyper, a Dutch Calvinist theologian, minister, and politician, was absolutely right when he said this. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. He made it. He owns it. He does with it what he wills. No part of his creation stands outside the scope of his control, nor his divine decree. His purpose shall stand. Paul tells us in Ephesians that God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ever ask or think. He is the Lord God Almighty, and this world is his. And we must answer to him. God's power is infinite. He is unlimited in the free exercise of his divine will. No man can stand in his way. In fact, no created thing can stand in his way. All of them will accomplish his divine purpose. We may not fully understand that purpose. We may not fully agree with that purpose. Men may not like that purpose, but we are powerless to stand against the purpose of God. God is not bound by anyone. He is not bound by anything. He is able to do whatever he chooses to do. He is free, as he tells us in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. He is free to dispense his mercy to whom he wills and to harden the heart of whomever he wills. And I don't put this in our sermon notes for flippant purposes. I know that is a weighty truth, and it causes some to not want anything to do with God, and it causes others to recognize that he is God and to worship him accordingly. Now, I do think that we would all agree that as powerful as God is and as immense as God is, it would be a very frightening thing and a very hopeless reality if a being so powerful was not also a being that is holy, which God is. That God is holy means that he is absolutely separated from sin. He is incapable of being influenced by it. God's decisions, God's purposes, even his purpose of judgment, never misses the mark. He never transgresses any boundary. His will is perfect. The Lord our God is righteous in all his works, Daniel tells us in Daniel chapter 9. God's sovereignty is perfectly aligned with his goodness and his grace and his mercy and his justice and his wrath. And God can exercise all of these attributes simultaneously and perfectly. And if you're thinking, wow, that's pretty, that's pretty hard to get your mind around. Yeah, because you're trying to get your mind around the, the majesty of God. Paul tried that, and at the end of it, he said, you know what, who can understand the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? There are no maverick emotions in God. Nothing can disrupt his plan. There are no forces in this universe that can stand in his way. He is God alone, and his program of judgment is his to command. So as we continue to study the program of God's judgments, we look at these individual bowls on their own in the weeks to come. Keep this in mind. God is accomplishing his sovereign purpose using his creative order in order to do so. And he is good in the dispensing of that program. Now, we've looked a little bit at the program of God's judgment. Now let's look at the object of God's 
judgment. Look back at verse 2. It says that when the, the bowls were poured out, harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. And then the second angel poured out his bowl, and the third angel poured out his. And then in verse 5, it says that the angel comes forward and he says this, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they the ones upon whom the judgment has been poured, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And then we, we learn in verses 9 and verses 11 that these individuals, upon seeing the judgment of God, they did not repent. They refused to give him glory. Now, this third angel praises God for his justice. God is doing what is right. He is giving to these unbelievers what they deserve. These plagues reveal just how hardened the hearts of sinful humanity are. But the hardness of their heart is expressed in three particular ways that we see right here in the text. The first one is idolatry. They worship the beast. The second is persecution. They persecute the people of God. And then third, they refuse to repent. So the individuals who are receiving the judgment of God fall into this category. They are idolatrous, they are persecutors of the church, and they are refusing to repent. So let's talk about that for a few minutes. Let's think about idolatry. Verse 2 tells us that these individuals, they bore the mark of the beast and they worship his image. Now we studied this weeks ago, months ago. And what this is helping us understand is that these individuals are devoted to a false god. They are devoted to the false god of this world, and they are worshiping him. And don't miss the ironic fact that they bear the mark of the beast on their skin, and when God punishes them, he pours out punishment upon their skin. There is irony intended in that language. But make no mistake, their sin is idolatry. Now, you may know this. Throughout Scripture, the sin of idolatry is marked out as specifically heinous crime against God, so wicked that the first commandment in the ten is devoted to condemning the practice of idolatry. Right? You, you're going to remember this. In Exodus chapter 20 and verse 2, God says, I am the Lord your God. I am the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and you shall have no other gods before me. In March of 2016, I was blessed to be able to go uh, to the other side of the globe and to go to Pune, India to visit with Luke and Julie Thompson. I don't know if anybody else has been to Pune. Maybe you've been to India at some particular place. I I've been all over this country and I've been to various places throughout the world, but without doubt, Pune was one of the most memorable experiences of my life. It's a completely different culture, completely different food, completely different um, way of life, a completely different dress code. I mean, everything in the city was absolutely different than anything I had experienced. Pune is home to more than 3.1 million people, which in India makes that a very small city. Uh, but the city was completely packed with people. It was packed with people and little motorized rickshaws and little scooters. And I mean, there's, there's just all kinds of, there were animals walking around the city. And some of the oldest buildings that I think I've ever seen. Um, but mingled in amongst all of this stuff were these odd little temples. Some of them were small looking no bigger than maybe a ticket booth that you might see 
um, outside of a, you know, an, a, an establishment, a, a theater or something like that. Some of them were larger. Some of them were so large they would take up half a city block. And they were very ornate. And where most of the city showed the poverty of the people, these particular buildings were gold. And they were clean. And they were standing out. And what I realized is that these were the little temples that housed some of the more than 300 million gods that make up the Hindu religion. And at first... You know, I, I would see them and, and they would just kind of blend into the surroundings. But as I recognized what was going on and I started to spot all of these, they were everywhere. You know, we talk about having a church on every corner in small towns in America. You've never seen so many little temples in your life. And at some point, as I was looking and seeing this, I began to realize that I was completely surrounded by idols and idolatry. Worship was taking place all around me. People would walk up and they would put money in a jar and they would bow down and they would put flowers on the altar to these gods, these idols. It was happening everywhere. Worship was taking place everywhere, but absolutely none of it was directed at the one true God. It is possible to be a sincere worshiper and at the same time to be worshiping a false god, to be worshiping an idol. And this is just one of the many reasons why this is the first commandment and why it's so critical. The most important aspect of our faith is not how hard we believe or even how sincerely we worshiped, but in whom we believe and who we worship. The people under the judgment of the first bowl are idolaters because they have made a faith commitment to the idol of the beast from the earth. John has already introduced this beast to us. We know a little bit about him. We'll study him a little bit more in the weeks to come. But here's what he does. He tempts people to believe anything and everything except the truth of Scripture. He's not bound to one ideology. He will employ many different ideologies throughout the earth. As long as it's not the ideology or not the religion, not the faith that is delivered to the saints in the Word of God. He will have you believe anything and everything except the truth of Scripture. He tempts you to to reject the God of creation and and worship the God of your own making. He, He tempts us to turn away from the truth of man's sin and the need of forgiveness that only Christ can offer, and and, and he wants us to worship him instead. Your idol in this life may be secular humanism, it could be political fanaticism, it could be narcissistic worldliness. It's all over our culture today, but behind them all, John is telling us, is this beast, this demonic influence that motivates all of these things. And all of these different ideas at various stages will lead to the persecution of people who disagree with them, which brings us to the second reason that they are receiving the wrath of God. Not only are they idolaters, but also they are persecuting the saints. Verse 6 tells us that they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you, God, have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And this is not the first time we've seen the saints of God suffering under the the wrath of the world, right? We saw earlier on in chapter 6 where the saints were below the altar of God crying out for justice because they had been slain for their testimony. Y'all may remember that. We see a, a similar picture here. The 21st century church in America is witnessing we are in the middle of a massive shift 
in the way that Christians are looked at and viewed by this particular society. It seems like it's happened pretty quickly, but if you go back and do some of the, the studies into the philosophies that have shifted the, the thinking of our culture, you know this has been going on for a long time. But the tide of our culture has shifted to the point that the biblical truth, which we hold dear, is seen as culturally oppressive. It's seen as toxic and needing to be stopped. And Christians who were once just maybe laughed at, mocked, or the point of ridicule are now being sued and fined and threatened and thrown in jail, not just here in America, but in other countries as well. And this is perhaps just the beginning of the suffering that we will face at the hands of the beast and at the hands of our own countrymen. But this bowl of God's wrath and judgment is heaven's answer to the cries of God's persecuted people. God has not forgotten the injustice that we face. The Lord Jesus will bring justice to bear on those who dwell on the earth. He will vindicate his people and he will punish sin. And as we learned a few weeks ago, is it necessary for God to punish sin and judge those who do evil? Yes, it is. Because he is a just God. Because our God is just, justice demands that sin be punished. So, these individuals are idolaters. These individuals are persecuting the, the, the saints. And then the last reason why the judgment of God is coming upon them is that they refuse to repent. They hear the message of God. They see the judgment of God. They're warned by the trumpets of God, and yet they refused to repent of their sin and trust in Christ. And we read that in verse 9 and in verse 11. The judgment of God falls upon those who refuse to repent and give glory to God. Now, we're, we throw that word around quite a bit in the church, right? Repentance. What does repentance mean? Repentance implies this turning around, this change, this altering of one's course. But it's not just a reference to altering or changing behavior. It's also in reference to changing your mind and an understanding. We, where we once believed a thing, now we believe the truth. Where we once lived according to these beliefs, now we live according to the truth. True repentance includes a genuine regret over sin what the Bible calls godly sorrow, and it leads to a life of faith and fruitfulness. False repentance doesn't feel that sorrow. While it may appear to have undergone some change, eventually individuals who have false repentance will go back to their sin. When people repent of sin, the Lord is gracious to them. Right? But when they do not, we read in verse 9 that they were going to feel the heat of God's wrath. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God. For all that they have seen in the world, they maintain their loyalty to the beast instead of receiving the Lamb of God. For all that they have heard in the witness of Christians, they are committed to persecuting the faithful rather than to joining them in humble faith. And for all the warnings contained in the trumpets of God, they have hardened their hearts, refusing to repent. And that's why they receive the judgment of God. The objects of God's judgment are unbelievers who worship the beast in their idolatry, who persecute the church, and who refuse to repent of their sins. And this is a, this is a weighty message. And we've been studying judgment for quite a while, and we're going to continue to study the judgment of God. And it's important that we make sure that we hear the message. This message 
should, in our hearts and minds, highlight for us the necessity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can think about it this way. You can think about the gospel and what we're seeing here in the Revelation as a picture of God holding two cups. In one hand, God holds the cup of his mercy that he dispenses to those who come to Christ with the empty hands of faith to receive what he's done for them, to turn from their sins, and to walk that life that Christ has called them to. And they will receive the cup of God's mercy. Those are believers. And then there's the cup of God's justice and wrath. And for those who reject him as God and refuse to turn from their sin and trust in Christ, they will receive the cup of God's wrath. There's two cups that God holds out to us. And if the idolatrous, persecuting, unrepentant people of the world are to receive the cup of God's wrath, then what should it look like for those who claim to be Christians? What should it look like for us who by faith in Christ hope to receive the cup of God's blessing? Well, let's take the the markers of the objects of God's wrath and let's turn them around. Right? where they were idolaters in that they bore the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. As Christians, we bear the marks of Christ and we worship him. It is a common cultural delusion, and it is quite prevalent in the South, that a person can have a relationship with God apart from any sincere devotion to Christ and to his word. And that's a delusion, that's not true. Many think that they can simply pick and choose what they want to believe about God. I don't like this aspect of it, so I'll just delete that. Oh, I like the love part, so I'll redefine that, and I'll I'll embrace the, the love of God in this narrowly defined way. And they will pick and choose how they're going to live their lives, not in response to truth, but in defiance of truth. And and individuals form their opinions of who God is and what he likes and what he doesn't like. And in the end, what they've done is they've constructed an idol in their own image. They're not believing in, trusting, and worshiping the one true God. And the lifestyle of so many who claim to be Christians reflect not a genuine faith in Christ, but an idol of their own making. That's not biblical Christianity. So don't fall into that lie. A real relationship to God comes to those who trust in Christ as he is revealed in Scripture. Claiming to be a Christian while bearing no fruit of repentance and no fruit of obedience and no fruit of dying to yourself and no fruit of growth and maturity in the faith, that calls your claim into question. And if I had time and and you were more patient, I could probably go to 1 John and we would read all of this stuff because the same John who wrote this Apocalypse also wrote letters to to show us what true faith looks like and what false faith looks like. Don't fall into that cultural trap. True belief bears the fruit of faith. It bears the marks of trusting in and walking with Jesus. It resembles a, a humble heart and a life of repentance and spiritual maturity and growth. So where the unbelieving world bears the marks of the idol that they worship, our lives as Christians should bear the mark of the God that we worship. Secondly, where the unbelieving world set to receive the judgment of God persecutes the saints, what does God call us to do for one another? We're to love one another. We're to love one another as God has loved us. One day, 
a scribe came to Jesus and he asked Jesus, teacher, what is the, what is the, the greatest commandment in all of the law? And you remember how Jesus responded. Jesus said, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you are to love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, these things sum up the law for us. Jesus makes clear to us that the two greatest commandments both direct our hearts to love. To love God and to love each other. And it's to be motivated by the love that we've been shown. God has loved us with an everlasting love. The Bible says that God set his love upon us before the foundations of the world. God loved us so that he gave his only begotten son to to come and live and die for us so that by faith in him we can have eternal life. This is a description of the love of God. And it's the love of God that should motivate our love for him. Christ came because of love. He came to show and display the love of God to us. And he did this by laying down his life in our place. You see, apart from faith in Christ and apart from the protection afforded to us by Christ, we would receive the same bowls of God's wrath. Because that's what we deserve. We are sinners to a man. And yet, in his love, Christ came And he lived a righteous life that we couldn't hope to live. And he died a sacrificial death in our place. And by faith in him, we can receive the loving, sacrificial salvation that God has promised to us. Undeserving, but it's offered to us. And then he calls us in response, not only to love him, but to love one another. Love is not just an emotion, by the way. It's also an action. Did you know that? You can say, oh yeah, I love that person because you feel something warm in your hearts for them. But what love looks like is what Jesus taught us in John chapter 13 when he, he stripped off his outer garments and he got on his knees and he washed his disciples' feet and he served them. The picture of the cross is a picture of the love of God in action for us, one who would lay down his life for his friends. There's no greater love than that, he tells us. And love for us as a people and as individuals and as family and specifically as a church, is to be embodied in our love for one another, a genuine concern about each other. And look, I know this. I know it's hard. My goal when I come in on Sunday mornings is to see as many people as I can and say hi and shake hands and, hey, how you doing? And it is really hard to go deep when all I'm trying to do is is see as many people as possible. So it's not going to happen exclusively. Our love for one another is not going to happen and it's not going to grow if we exclusively devote ourselves to it on Sunday morning. We're going to have to get in each other's lives in the right ways. We're going to have to open our homes and show hospitality. We're going to have to care about what's going on in someone's life and maybe write it down on a little post-it note. I know one of our elders who's done that for years. What's going on in this person's life and how can I pray for you? And when there's a need, we step forward and we take meals or we just pray, we encourage, we help. Love one another. This is what we're called to do. Christ calls each of us to be a channel of love, love to one another. And we need to grow in this or continue growing in this. So last one. They were idolaters bearing the mark of the beast. We are faithful Christians who bear the marks of Christ. They were persecutors of the saints and we are to be those who love the saints. And they refuse to repent and give God glory and we are those who are repenters because we're always struggling with sin. 
living in the American suburbs can be one of the most hazardous things to your soul. The message of the suburbs is everyone is fine, and having new and more stuff is what really makes you happy. I don't know how you would define the message of the suburbs, but that's how I would define it. The value of the suburbs is convenience and abundance and comfort. Out here, you can buy anything you want, and you can have it delivered to your house in 24 hours. And that spirit of consumerism and self-centered, every, it, it can be very toxic to the growth of your faith. Life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. Easy chair comfort is not the ultimate goal. Growing in Christ's likeness, that's what we've been saved for. Bringing glory to God, that's what we were created for. Brothers and sisters, we are those who are called to walk with Christ on that narrow and dangerous road. And it's going to require us to repent of a lot of things. And in America, it's going to require us to repent of some of that comfort that we just enjoy so much. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. God's glory is the goal. We are to know Christ and to make him known. So let us not be those who hear the voice of God and refuse to repent, but who hear the word of God and repent joyfully. Let us take his truth to heart and bear the fruit of a life of faith in Christ. Let us turn from sin and keep following Christ on that narrow road that leads to life. That's what we've been called to. So, Let me pray for us and ask the Spirit to guide us in this journey. Father, I thank you for your word and I thank you for this time in it. I pray that it would be profitable not just for our edification, but also for the sake of the program of the church. Because in the midst of this program of judgment that we're seeing unfold here, you have still called us to be salt and light in this world. You've called us to love one another. You've called us to grow. You've called us to be servants to each other and to accomplish your purpose in this world as witnesses for Christ. So would you prepare us for that? Would you strengthen us for that by your spirit? And would you use us? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.